Welcome back to Take a Moment. This is Josh Reed, producer of the show. And before the holiday season, we talked to Nathan Bennett, co-host of the show. And we sat him in the hot seat and talked a little bit about his career, uh, where he started out and what he does here at Genesis, as well as some of the holiday traditions that he celebrates. It's that time now to sit Mari Yamaguchi down and learn a little bit more about her. Uh, this is part of our two-part series for the Holiday Host Highlight. And the conversation that I had with Mari was awesome because, I mean, you anybody who knows Mari, she's just this really driven, professional, and just down-to-earth woman. And we talk a lot about um, her her comeuppings. She actually started off in a, a competitive career in figure skating. She started when she was six years old and competed until she was 22 when she retired. And from her professional and competitive figure skating career, she transitioned into uh, a role in broadcast journalism. And then if that wasn't enough, she actually wanted to dabble in politics. So as you can see, the going theme with Marius is that she just can't sit still and that she wants to go and uh, basically take on the world. And she's doing so quite successfully. From politics, she transitioned into Genesis, where she focuses on CX design and NPS, otherwise known as the Net Promoter Score. Uh, I know what you're thinking. What in the world does that mean? Well, she'll take the time to describe and in detail what that is and why it's important for your company and also give you a little bit of advice on how to maintain a positive net promoter score within your company. From there, we'll talk about some holiday traditions that she shared uh, with her family growing up as well as some that she started now with her husband. Uh, it's kind of great. They don't necessarily put an emphasis on Christmas. They put the emphasis on the Japanese New Year, bringing in the New Year with symbolic foods that are very similar to similar to our uh, New Year's resolutions. So, some food might represent, you know, bringing in the New Year of good fortune as well as you know good health. Um, it was great to talk with her about that, and she'd actually just recently traveled to Japan, so she'll tell us a little bit about you know the things that she did there and what she would recommend you do if you were ever to travel there. It was an incredible conversation, and I cannot wait for you to listen, so please sit back, relax, and take a moment with us. Mari Yamaguchi, how are you doing today? Hello, Josh. I am doing well. I told Nate that I uh, want to make sure that I do you guys justice because you guys get up here and you're pros. You you start like talking to <laughs> to your guests and you're all charismatic and fun and I'm always the person behind the scenes. So I will but try to do the, you guys you're justice. You're the most important person though. You make us sound good and smart. You've said it before too. <laughs> you absolutely hate hearing yourself talking to like uh, or like a recording or whatever. And it's just the worst part of my job to hear myself. <laughs> like I have to edit like a 45 minute episode of just myself. So again, I will do my best over the course of the next 40 minutes or so. So I actually want to get to know you a little bit. I know you were born here in Indy, but your family was originally from Japan. So could you tell us a little bit about what brought them to the States? Yeah, sure. So I still have family back home in Tokyo. Uh, it's actually funny that you mentioned I just actually came back uh, recently from mm -hmm. a trip to visit my grandmother. So um, background, uh, my parents came to the United States, um, both to New York City. My mother uh, for the Japanese consulate, she got a post to work at the New York Embassy. So oh, wow. that's how she came in. And then my father was an international scholarship student for Juilliard Music School as a cellist. So he came uh, to New York in that way. 
like I said, your upbringing was a little different than most young women because you grew up training to be a competitive figure skater, correct? Yes. So why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, when you started, uh, what a day in the life of a figure skater looked like, and more about your career. So I was six years old when I started. It was actually a way for my parents to kind of contain my energy. Okay. <laughs> um, my father being a cellist and being in classical music, the whole idea was, okay, let's start out um, having her playing some sort of instrument. Mm -hmm. And usually for most children that have uh, a professional musician, mm -hmm. they start out on the piano. Okay. I was three years old. I was sat down on the piano couldn't sit still okay. for the life of me. Um, I really couldn't understand why I needed to learn all the musical notes because at the time, if somebody played a piece of music a couple times, I would be able to figure, figure it out, out on, on oh my, my own. And so I would go, well, why am I wasting my time trying to learn all these, yeah, <laughs> all absolutely. these notes? That, that to me was very logical in my three, four-year-old brain. Then my parents were like, all right, well, maybe she'll, she'll do better like where she's more active. Yep. So the next thing was, well, she's a girl, so let's put her in ballet. Okay. Which was cute, which was great, and I had a lot of fun. But this time it was, I felt like I could choreograph things on my own. That lasted for probably about mm, another six to seven months before okay. the teacher told my parents that I was disruptive to the class oh and my that gosh. I should maybe come back a little Things bit later. are really starting to make sense with Mari here in the <laughs> office, too. Just super disruptive. No, kidding. <laughs> super disruptive. <laughs> wanting to do things on my own. So then they're like, all right, last ditch. My mom was like, you know, I always love figure skating. Um, so it's a good mix of being able to bring in the classical music side because you'll always have to be skating to some kind of um, music. So, And I love that. So she's like, she likes that and she likes being active. So let's figure it out and see if she likes it. So they put me on the ice and there were a couple of coaches that were teaching like the tiny tots or whatever. Mm -hmm. And they were like, you know, she's a natural. Let's see if we can um, what she can do. So we spoke off mic. You said that usually young women or young girls start at like three and you started at six and you were already behind. Yes. Like, how is that? How is that a thing? <laughs> yeah. So I was told by. Um, so throughout my career, I've had uh, several different coaches and um, one during one phase, I had some Russian coaches and they're like, you know, you <laughs> if you had started at three, you'd be like at this level by oh now. And I'm like, OK, great. <laughs> you know? But imagine working with three year old you who's like, actually, you're doing it wrong. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so then I'm like, you know, it's probably good that you got me at like seven or eight. <laughs> Uh, so how many hours a day would you train? A typical day would be probably getting up around 4.30 in the morning um, and being at the rink uh, between 5 and 5.30. Oh, my gosh. We would do some warm-up exercises as a group and as a team. And then from there, we were on the ice um, probably from like 6 in the morning until probably 8.30, 9 o'clock. Okay. And then scarf down a quick breakfast. Yep. Um, go to school. I was very fortunate enough that my school was very understanding mm -hmm. um, of my situation, and so I think that helped with the school to understand and realize that you know what this is the path that she wants to take. So education is still important. So yeah. let's make let's make this a win win for everybody. So they would let me come in um, probably like an hour or two later than oh, most wow. kids. They would stack my classes so that I'd have like PE and health like early. Oh, okay. In the morning. Yep. And then school, after school, it would probably be another from like 3, 3.30 on until another couple more hours. So I'd be back home around 7.30. 
So between three and, and seven, it would be, we would have some kind of off ice, yep. which, was, which was like off ice training. Um, and then also a ballet day, a jazz class day or something. And then some more on ice time as well too. So a very packed day. I was going to say, good God almighty. <laughs> and then I had homework. I don't even like going to that. the gym. So I cannot imagine <laughs> just rolling around on ice. Well, first of all, I'm always cold. So that would be awful to just constantly be on the ice, freezing <laughs> the whole time. Well, you're moving, right? So like people would be like, why is she in a tank top, right? Uh, well, that's true. <laughs> I, I could see that. In the lobby, but yeah. So then, so you, picture this, you're 10 years old, you're mm -hmm. sitting in your living room and you're watching the Olympics for the first time. Uh, who are you rooting for and what influence did that individual have on your career in figure skating? It would have been 1992. So that would have been the Albertaville Winter Olympics. Mm -hmm. And I remember watching Christy Yamaguchi. Funny. I know. I, I know. Say, you're looking no, at me no like, really? No, <laughs> no relation. No. Um, but I remember watching her and being really inspired and saying yeah. to myself, you know, and, and I think the other piece was, you know, here she is, a Japanese-American mm -hmm. also um, on the ice. I never really looked at it from that lens at the time. But to me, it was like, you know, she looks like me and look at what she's doing and how incredible she looks on the ice and, you know, how she's executing everything with such precision. And what I really admired about her was was her skating style, right? Yeah. It was both not only athleticism, but the grace and the artistry that she brought. So it didn't look like it was just somebody just going through doing the elements. It was, she was telling a story yeah. on the ice. And I think that's what really drew me to figure skating um, was that no matter what it was, mm -hmm. you were telling a story. Not to derail the conversation, but yeah. I feel like Nate would absolutely love <laughs> to hear this because, again, director of brand story, yes. talking about the importance of story, yes. he would probably be nerding out right now. Yes. Yeah. And one of my coaches, my choreographer, he had always said, you know, think of the ice rink as a blank canvas. Yeah. And go paint it however you want to paint. If you want a Jackson Pollock, the whole thing, go right ahead. Yeah. <laughs> um, or you can make it into a Picasso, whatever, you know, inspires you and whatever you feel. He's like, that's what you should always look at with the eyes. So that's amazing. Yeah. So you competed for about 16 years. Yes. You retired at 22. So yes. what would you say is your proudest moment, something that you've achieved during your competitive uh, figure skating career? So one of my favorite memories was uh, the first a first international that uh, my coach took a group of us to up in Canada. Okay. Um, you know, we're doing it by Canadian regulations, which is slightly different than U.S. standards as mm -hmm. well, too. So um, their standards are were very different than what I was used to. So being able to compete um, in that realm was, mm -hmm. was fantastic to me because yeah. it was a challenge, right? Because here I am used to one st set of standards, and now I'm trying to... Um, compete and be at the best at another. So that was that was a fantastic opportunity. But I think one of the best things that I learned throughout my career was that even though we're competing, it was never about competing with anybody else. And my coach was very big about what he called the phantom. Okay. And the phantom was the best version of me. So it was the one that could execute a clean program, which meant no falls, no misses, um, yep. or anything like that. So, and then executing those jumps in the most perfect way. He was very much a technician, my mm -hmm. coach. So he, we would really like, like a football player, um, 
watching game footage. Mm -hmm. He would videotape me um, with my doing all of my elements and we would really dissect everything out so that we can see points where if I improved, you know, my takeoff, how much easier my landing would look. So yeah. it was more about the execution. So he would always say, you know, you're not competing against, you know, Jill down the street or um, Karen over in Cleveland or whatever. It was you're competing against the best version of yourself. And if every at every competition you feel like you did that, mm -hmm. then that to me, he was like, is enough. Because, I mean, I'm going to be honest, right? Like figure skating is a very subjective sport, right? Yeah, because we sure. have judges. It's not like a sprint where... You get to the finish line first. You're you're a winner. Right. It could be two two very different figure skaters. They did two very different programs. Um, skated the same. They did all the elements, but it comes down to whose style judges liked at that moment, right? So, yeah. um, I think it was a great way. Now that I look back on it, for him to be able to say, you know, don't get discouraged because some things aren't in your control right and then for those things that are in your control you're competing against your phantoms so it's one of those things that i kind of take back now um in every single part of my various careers was it was never about um am i competing against somebody else mm -hmm. it was am i competing against the best version of myself that really is incredible i'd love to know a lot more i mean i feel like we could do an entire episode <laughs> on on this Let's go skating um but how about we transition into your professional career? So I know that you graduated college in Indy with a degree in humanities. What exactly does that mean? And why don't you tell us a little bit about your time in broadcast journalism for Univision, CBS, and Fox? So humanities, it's really a broad brushstroke, right? And I think looking back on it now, it was a fantastic background for me. It enables someone to think critically, um, and then it also encompasses really all of like the arts and language and all the things that I really loved. Yeah. Um, the reason why I actually went into human, I actually started out thinking that I was um, going to medicine and then I got into it and there was a lot of math and, and all that yep. good stuff. And I was like, you know, this isn't really my cup of tea. Um, I think we're starting to see this theme of if it's rigid and processed, I don't do so well. Okay, okay. <laughs> but then, you know, I was taking all these other, I guess, elective classes, and I was really enjoying it. And one of my professors was like, you know, if you're really actually enjoying this, like, you can probably, you'll probably do fine, like, muscling your way through mm -hmm. um, this set path that you think that you need to go through. But they're like, really, you know, it looks like you're really good at these things naturally. Why not try it? Yeah, try why it not out. explore those? Right. So um, very thankful that I had a professor that recognized it and I was like, all right, well, let, let's see what happens. Um, I had always loved to write um, and to read and be like all nerdy about being a bookworm. Uh -huh. <laughs> I remember in fourth grade, we had a uh, uh, reading contest and I was like, I gotta win this <laughs> and read as many books as I can. But, yeah. um, but I mean, literature and English and writing and all those uh, types of things in philosophy are like really um, inspired me. So, um, it just felt like a natural fit. I didn't know what I was going to do sure. for my job. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I think it laid a really good groundwork for me, um, especially that critical thinking piece. I think a lot of folks don't take that as seriously as yeah. probably as they should um, when they're going through their college experience and how that can really help them later on in their career. And when did you start for um, Univision? Yeah, so my path to broadcast journalism started out um, – 
as first as a 500 festival princess. So okay. for Indianapolis, for so for those of you that don't know, um, the 500 festival is tied with the Indy 500, yep. uh, the greatest spectacle in racing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and every year there's 33 entrants into um, the field for the racing. And then so in conjunction with that back in like in the 40s and 50s, the 500 Festival created this program called the called the 500 Festival Princess Program. So it was started out as a pageant where the um, ladies, young ladies, all college age, um, would be paired up with one of the um, drivers, and okay. they would just basically like go to attend all the festivities and events during the whole month of May. Yeah. Um, together, as the program evolved, it became one where it was about not so much being all pageanty, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Like big ball gowns and things, but there was still that, but it was more about choosing young ladies that had um, a lot of civic involvement, okay. leadership um, experience, and then obviously a high GPA. I was selected as one of the 33, and as part of that program, they pair you up with a um, civic leader, okay. somebody that's um you know, a CEO or um, a top level executive um, throughout all the various industries within the city. Mm-hmm. So um, the person that I was paired up with happened to be really good friends with um, the person who was running the CBS affiliate here in Indianapolis. Okay. And they said, you know, we have an internship program. Um, if you wanted to explore that, you, you know, you said you like doing like writing and telling stories. They're like, you know, that's essentially what, you know, being a reporter is and yeah. being in news is you think it's just a bunch of people reading a script but they're like it's actually really telling a story so um, I actually started out as an intern mm-hmm. um, and then I saw that there was a Spanish language television station affiliated with this uh, station and so I kind of peeked my head in and I said yeah. hey what, what's going on over here and uh, uh, do you think I can help Was my minor was in Spanish mm-hmm. uh, so I was like I really want to work on my Spanish and so they call me the intern that never left okay. <laughs> um, so really after my internship ended I, I talked to the um, general manager for Univision and I said hey you know I really enjoy it I you know, if there's a position for me or some way where I can start out and stay, I'd love to. And he's like, well, actually, I have a uh, position open. Do you want to start? And so before I even graduated, I, I already had a had a gig. So That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. That's so great. So, and how long did you work for them? I was with Univision and CBS for about three, three and a half years. Okay. And then um, so I first started out uh, reporting and producing and then from there, I went on to the back end side because as I learned, you know, there's all these various different functions within um, a news organization. It's not just the reporter, the anchor, and mm-hmm. the producer. There's always also a brand side, a side that's uh, promoting the station and, and audience development. And that really uh, piqued my interest. So I went on the other side um, into our branding side yep. and uh, created the first uh, branding campaign for Univision in this market. Um, and they were relatively new, so um, they kind of gave me a little bit more leeway, which was good. This is <laughs> which is always fun. <laughs> and then from there, um, I transitioned over to our Fox affiliate, um, okay. doing the same thing and producing. So one of my favorite things that you and Nate always say, or something that you guys talk about often, is that you have like Franken careers. You've dabbled <laughs> in a, a lot of different careers. Yeah. So you started off in competitive figure skating, then mm-hmm. you went into broadcast journalism. You also dipped your toes in uh, the 
the career of government and politics. So could you tell us a little bit about uh, that as well as who did you uh, work for and contribute in term for that office? Yeah. So um, throughout while working in the news industry, we always um, interface with various different um, entities. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the things that early on in my career, my um, news director had said, you know, never burn your bridges and always keep your sources um, close, yeah. right? So um, I was always good about never revealing my sources and, and keeping their confidence. And one of them um, happened to reach out to me and say, hey, you know, we currently have a gap in the administration in the city of Indianapolis, uh, specifically for Mayor Ballard. And he's like, you know, what do you think? Is, would this be something that you're interested in? And at the time, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. Yeah, for sure. Um, but I'd always liked a good challenge. And, you know, I felt like I had had my fill of being in the journalism broadcast news side. And I said, you know what, how awesome would it be to not be telling the story of the news, but being the actual news maker. Okay. So in my head, I was like, you know, we have the opportunity um, working in government to create the news. Mm -hmm. So um, I said, all right, challenge accepted. I'm going to come work for you guys. I have no political background, no, you know, political ties either way to any party or whatever. Yeah. And he said, you know, that's actually perfect because that makes you pretty objective and you can relate. So um, my position was for Mayor Ballard and his administration for the city of Indianapolis. Okay. And my focus was um, working with our um, specifically our broadcast journalism, television side, media side. Um, each uh, person on that communications team had a niche. So yep. some folks, you know, came from the newspaper side. So they were uh, working specifically for the newspaper and radio side. And then they had that opening for the television broadcast side. And then we also had somebody specifically dedicated to um, social media and new emerging technologies. So it was a very fun group of uh, ladies, um, all three of us. We joked um, our our uh, boss was the deputy chief of staff, yeah. and his name was Robert. And we were we used to call ourselves Robert's Angels, oh, <laughs> like Charlie's cool. Angels, because we were always out there fighting the battles yeah. and, <laughs> and all that kind of good stuff. But that's great. Yeah. So I hate to interrupt, but we do have to take a quick break. But when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about Mari's transition into. Genesis. We'll be right back. Hello there, Josh Reed here, producer of Take a Moment. I want to start off by saying welcome back from the holiday season, and we start off our conversations strong with Mari Yamaguchi, continuing our holiday host highlight series. During my conversation with Mari, she talks about her role here at Genesis with relation to NPS or Net Promoter Score. For additional information, check out the resources below on Genesis.com. These blogs will expand on what NPS is and how customer satisfaction surveys can truly expand a relationship with your customer. And thanks for listening. If you missed it, go back and listen to our holiday host highlight part one with Nathan Bennett and be sure to subscribe and share. Welcome back. We're going to continue our conversation with Miss Mari Yamaguchi. Right now, you are currently working for a widely known and successful technology company. 
with everything that you've done, how did your journey uh, from being in careers like competitive figure skating, broadcast, and government bring you to Genesis? And tell us a little bit about your time when you first started at the company. Yeah, for sure. So while I was with the administration, I also focused a lot of my um, communication and, and my outreach to um, various departments sure. and, and advising those um uh, top-level officials. So um, those were in the areas of diversity, uh, minority women business development, our international affairs side, and then also our um, community side. Okay. And so when I saw an opening at Genesis for an international customer experience specialist, I, one, didn't know what Genesis was. Mm -hmm. I would pass by every single time. Um, back then, it, it was before the acquisition, so um, it was called Interactive Intelligence. Yep. And so I would always pass through um, by when I was, used to work at Fox and things like that. I would see the sign, and I'd be like, what are they? Yeah, <laughs> what, what's going on over there? I had no idea it was a technology company. Shame yep. on me, right? I'm <laughs> 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 being in the news, and I didn't know. Um, but uh, so I saw the opening, and I was like, you know, this is very new. It's another new challenge. Um, I guess the theme is I apparently like new challenges and acquiring and learning and getting new um, skills. So yeah. um, I looked at the job description and I said, you know, while I may not have a super technical background, I do bring that area of um, knowledge of how the international community works, um, yeah. cultural appreciation, just I think growing up biculturally, right? Mm -hmm. Like as being Japanese, but also um, growing up in a very American <laughs> yeah. um, school system and, and, and essentially growing up in America, I, I understood that there was the need to bridge cultures and how that can be so beneficial, yeah. um, just not only for people, but also for businesses. And so, you know, I was like, let me see what I can um finagle as far as a cover letter in my interview and yeah. apparently I rocked it because then they uh, called me back and, and had me start and then it was kind of like the rest was history and then I the doors were open to like what the company did mm -hmm. and I was like you know this is really awesome it's essentially a great way for me to meld all the different Franken careers that I've had yeah. into into one uh, Franken career yep. now <laughs> so um, you know I was able to use my writing and my storytelling skills because um, we do tell a story for our customers, right? Mm -hmm. Like we tell the story of how we're helping them um, essentially get the best experience for their customers. Mm -hmm. So it was being able to tell that story externally, but also internally too, how we all each play a significant role in being able to impact our customers' lives. So, um, you know, that and then the fact that it, they needed somebody that had um, more of that international lens, yeah. um, I think, helped as well, too. So, And I know that you bounced around in a couple of different positions in Genesis, but your current focus is CX Design and NPS, yes. otherwise known as the Net Promoter Score. So why don't you tell our listeners exactly what that means <laughs> and what your primary focus is with, uh, with relation to NPS? Yeah, so... Um, my background, I started out in um, as an international CX specialist, and then I transitioned over into our education department, which was a phenomenal way to learn the product inside and out. And I highly recommend folks, you know, 
starting out, if you, you know what you love to do, that's great. Mm-hmm. But if you have that opportunity to explore um, other departments, definitely go for it. Because yeah. um, I feel like I learned about our product even more as that helps me now in my current position, yeah. um, managing our global CX design and MPS program. So, um, so. For those that don't know, um, Net Promoter Score, yes, it's called the MPS Net Promoter Score, but it's really more about the Net Promoter System. So it's getting behind the actual score. So somebody can give you a rating between 0 and 10, right? But it's really more about what's that feedback? What's making somebody give you a score of 1 versus a 9? And what Net Promoter System does is it creates this framework that um, becomes part of hopefully your company culture mm-hmm. where you know it's an engagement tool and it's also a way for um, you to measure not just customer satisfaction yeah. but more along the lines of loyalty and retention um, as your net promoter system matures hopefully it's maturing um, it becomes a great tool to become predictive so you can predict customer behaviors that are going to lead towards Churn attrition yeah. or retention and loyalty and advocacy. So, and how do you go about collecting this feedback? Yeah, so it's it's done by survey. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody gets it through their emails, um, and then from there we ask them to rate us. And then also there's an open text box field, so they can leave us any sort of comment from nice. good to great <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to ugly and not so happy. Um, but we take it all because I, even if you are giving us a promoter score, mm-hmm. you can still have issues with sure. how, you know, maybe there's a broken process or maybe there's something where, you know, they're like, it's good, but to get to great, if you could do this. I mean, as as a company, we can't just live within our own bubble, right? Like yep. we improve when we get feedback. I, I mean, as a figure skater, I improve because I got feedback from judges Absolutely. and coaches. Negative or positive. Right. It's, it's Negative. all constructive. Right. It's all constructive. Yep. So that's probably the power of Net Promoter System is that, you know, that powerful message from our customers of yep. saying, you know, this is where you're doing great, not so great. How do you get from good to better? Um, and then also the fact that we have this thing called the closed loop process, which I know I'm getting into the weeds and no, probably people perfect. are getting really bored right now. <laughs> but um, it's to basically ensure that, you know, after you send after you respond to a survey, that it's not going into some black hole, that there's yeah. actually people. Because that's the worry, right? Like Exactly. It's like, like, what am I doing this for? Right. Is, it, is it actually going to add value or right. make change? Right. Exactly. And so the power of part of the closed loop process within the net promoter system is, is to let the customer know that, Hey, we heard you mm-hmm. Two, these are the actions we're going to take. And then three closing the loop back up is these are the actions that we took based on your feedback. Um, and then let us know how we're doing on those things. So, and that's what, I mean, that's, that's all you have to do as a company. I mean, uh, right. And it's a great way to do like continuous improvement for exactly. our company. Continuous innovation for us is, getting that feedback from our customers. Yeah, it builds rapport with your customers yeah. to know that what they what they had to say was valued and that it will, it will maintain that relationship. Yes. Yeah. So then that that leads me to the the million dollar question here. Mm-hmm. So what key piece of advice could you give our listeners to improve and maintain a positive net promoter score? Right. Well, that's uh, <laughs> that's a big question, right? I know, I know. Loaded. Um so I think having a strong net promoter system framework mm-hmm. where it's understood from the top and top down and from the bottom up yep. of this is not just a score, but that this is 
part of how we as a company are going to be customer centric and how yep. we're customer focused. And what does that mean? So Net Promoter becomes a metric, but it's also a way to build that culture and that understanding around who our customer is. Yeah. Um, as they give us feedback, we're able to see who our customer is, especially for those people that may not um, be on the front lines interacting with customers. So anybody in finance or people like, you know, that no, don't maybe normally talk on a day to day basis with a customer. Mm -hmm. It's for everybody to understand that, you know, they have a critical and essential role in ensuring that the customer has the best experience possible. So the person in billing, you know, yeah. being able to send that out on time and, and accurately, that has a huge effect mm -hmm. on on how customers perceive us as a company um, and making sure that we're one that we show up as one company as well, too. Well, I'd love to continue that conversation, but we're coming up at the end of the episode. And uh, one of my favorite parts of <laughs> Nate's episode is we talked about some of the traditions that he would celebrate during the holidays. Mm -hmm. And I would love to ask you, could you tell us a little bit more about the traditions that you grew up celebrating during the holidays, especially in Japanese culture, as well as some of the traditions that you've started on your own? Yeah, for sure. So um, Japan, we have an appreciation for Christmas. Mm -hmm. um, I, when I was just back home, I mean, we had Christmas light shows like every other oh, cool. <laughs> street corner. So we love it and we embrace it, yeah. um, even though um, our main religion isn't necessarily Christianity. Um, but we still love the concept of it, right? Yeah. Um, so there's that aspect. But for our culture, the biggest thing is New Year's. Okay. And so um, part of that is a traditional meal is made. And each piece of the meal represents something different. Okay. So you would have, oh, I'm just going to make this as simple as possible. So sure. you'd have like things, you'd have like fish cakes or something, but it's not just a fish cake because of the shape or you'd have like a lotus root. Each of those things would represent something for the new year. So okay. whether it's for good luck and fortune, good health, like all these different aspects are put into just kind of like this stew type meal mm -hmm. that you would have um, on New Year's and New Year's Eve um, to just kind of ring in um, the good, the goodness for the next year and kind of reset yourself for how you're going to approach the new year. Um, and also on New Year's Eve, um, if you go to a shrine, they will um, ring the bell 108 times because the assumption is everyone has every human has 108 sins that they commit throughout okay. the year and so this is a way to a acknowledge it and then two to start the year off on a clean slate so it's kind of like uh, the tradition that we start here in the U.S. where we have our New Year's resolutions. But mm -hmm. for you, uh, in Japanese culture, it's more like instead of a resolution, it's it's wishing good fortune or you know good health for yes. the upcoming year. Yes. Yeah. And then that's when we really do kind of like our round gift rounds. Okay. Um, you'd go and visit uh, different folks, and um, you would give them presents to wish them a good good New Year's and a and a good year. And do, do, do you and your family celebrate this even now? Like, I know that you're, mm -hmm. uh, you have grandparents yes. who live in Japan. Do you always travel out there during the new year to celebrate this with them in person? Or is this something that you've kind of adapted to here in Indy? Yeah, so I think um, because it's just so hard to, I mean, it takes like a whole day, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> to, to travel out there. So um, 
we haven't necessarily gone out there every year, but um, we've adopted it. Um, I remember growing up, we adopted it um, here um, in in the states. Uh, but for sure, it's one of those great opportunities to visit with my grandparents and and see the see the tradition there. Yeah. So do you have any quirky traditions that you started now? And just as an example, uh-huh. so Nate does the, I don't remember what he called it. It's like this, the hide a elf or the secret elf where you have three oh, okay. elves that you hide around your house and oh. he and his wife, um, uh-huh. they hide them in like obscure places and they find them. Do you have anything that you celebrate with your husband mm-hmm. along those lines? Um, if not, that's okay, but... So something that my parents started was um, every Christmas um, I would we would go out and get one fam- new family Christmas ornament that okay. we would choose together. So um, it, we have now amassed <laughs> quite a bit, yeah, sure. uh, and the Christmas tree gets a full ornament round instead of just the front. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, but uh, I think that's one of the traditions that um, my husband and I will um, keep. Um, as well, too, to 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 keep that tradition alive, to have that. one new Christmas uh, ornament. And, and it's a good way to commemorate your year, right? It really is, though. Uh, my wife and I, actually, we do a little bit of um, ornament collecting ourselves. Mm-hmm. We When we first got our, our first apartment after we got married, we didn't have any ornaments for our tree, so we had to go out and buy, like, the generic green, yeah. red, and yeah. silver, balls. silver balls or whatever. <laughs> Um, and now we've made it a point to everywhere we go, anywhere we travel, we mm-hmm. grab an ornament, uh, even if it's just a plain Jane ornament, and it's just something that we could fill our tree with. Yeah. And then uh, memories, uh, right? Exactly. Yeah. And in addition to that, um, my uh, grandmother-in-law, um, Morgan's grandma, she buys us every year two ornaments that we could put up on our tree, and Aww. it just it can it fills it out and makes it more personal, makes it more your own. Right. Um, and now that we were in our new house, uh, we we moved into our new house within the last year you can start seeing like the front of our, our tree is mm-hmm. more like real ornaments and then the back <laughs> is the ones that we just fill space with. Yes. But yeah, it, it's definitely, you got to start the, those traditions. It, it's what drives the holidays. It gets you in the spirit. Yeah. Like, and it brings family together, right? Like exactly. with your gra- your uh, grandmother-in-law with her sending uh, you guys ornaments. It's exactly. a great way to incorporate both of your families together. Yes. Yeah. So unfortunately, we are coming to the end of our episode today. Uh, My favorite part with Nate was the rapid fire questions that I'm about to shoot to you. So these are three questions that um, I tailored a little bit towards you. So I'm going to start off with what is the strangest gift that you've received during the holidays? Um, That would be, I mean, it was cute, but I just didn't understand it was uh, when I was growing up, um, a friend of mine gave me an ornament with their thumbprint and a lock of their hair. And I didn't really understand what that meant. Okay. And I was like, that's cute, I guess. It's, it's uh, weird, weird, but it's nice and it's cute, nice. but it's hey. also weird. Oh, <laughs> so, yeah. I don't know if it makes it up on the tree, really. <laughs> oh, I forgot this year. Oh. Maybe next one. Like, oh, there's, yeah. there's always next year. Yeah. Interesting stuff. Yes, yes. Uh, what is one piece of technology that you absolutely cannot live without and you can't say your cell phone? Oh. Well, shoot. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody knows that you can't live without a phone in the modern day, uh, modern age. So what's one piece of technology? So for example, Nate's okay. was a can opener. It was an electric can opener. Um, so what would you say yours is? Oh, that's a good one. Um, I think for me, it would be my coffee maker. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, my mornings are not as pleasant for other folks if I don't have my coffee in the morning so okay don't mess with Mari if she doesn't have caffeine or coffee in her system understood yes 
And then the last question is, what is one thing that you would recommend someone do in Tokyo, since you just traveled yes. there, uh, if they were to travel there? Oh, wow. One thing. You have to one choose thing, one, one thing, thing out of the so plethora different. of things that you can do yes. in Tokyo. Yes. Well, it's so difficult. I was telling Josh, you know, Tokyo is made up of also 23 wards, and each ward mm-hmm. has something special that you can do. One of the places that I went to that I actually really enjoyed, um, and everybody knows about this place, it's it's the Tsukiji Fish Market. Um, okay. It's the traditional one where um, I think it's most famous because that's where they do the famous uh, tuna auction. Okay. Um, they've now split that into two different locations where um, one is specifically for that and then the, um, the original is still there and still some of the old um, stands are still there from like I don't know, 1930-something when they rebuilt it. Um, So that is one place that um, everybody knows that they should go to. But I think one that not a lot of people know about if um, you're not from there is this area called Ningyocho. Okay. Uh, Ningyo means doll. And the whole concept is that's where they used to make the traditional dolls in Japan. And so they've kept um, a lot of the traditional um, buildings there as well and then uh, traditional shops there. And then there are two very cute clock towers. And it includes the dolls. And on every hour, um, it's kind of like the European uh, clocks. Big Ben. Big Ben type clocks where something comes out. So this one... Both of them have a different story, and they tell the story, one, of uh, the fire brigade, and all the dolls come out um, when the bell rings uh, at the top of the hour, and there's a two-minute story about that. And then the other clock tower is really about the history of the area, of how it used to be, you know... um, in the Edo period, um, the the hub for all the trading and all for the markets and then also for all the doll making and all the little dolls come out and kind of spin around and it is just really cute. (laughs) So So now I know where I have to go if I am ever to travel to Japan. Yes. Well, Mari, this has been an incredible conversation. I've enjoyed every minute of it. And like I said, I feel like we could just sit here and talk about your figure skating career for hours. But unfortunately, that is all the time that we have today. But I want to thank you for coming in and and recording this. And I can't wait for our listeners to hear. So just uh, as a reminder to you, the listeners, this is a two-part series. So if you missed our holiday host highlight with Nate, be sure to go back before the holiday and and listen in. And I want to welcome you all back from your holiday break. And we are looking forward to our... The rest of our season, uh, second season in 2020. Awesome. Thank you, Josh.